Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you got a Bible, please grab it and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. We've been in a series called God with us in the book of Exodus, and we are continuing on today, starting in Exodus 13, starting at verse 17, and we'll read all the way through chapter 14, ending at verse 14. So Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through to chapter 14, ending at verse 14 of chapter 14. Now I'll begin reading. Here, here's what it says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Chapter 14, verse verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Piahiroth. Yeah, I said that right. Just say that to work tomorrow to somebody. We learned about Piahiroth at church. You'll be like the smartest person at your job. He said, turn back and camp in front of Piahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal Zephon facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, Oh, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done We've released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Piahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. Imagine this you've been set free, your enemy's gone, you don't see them, you leave, you're like, Whew, that was a close call. God got us up out of that situation. And then shortly thereafter, you look up one day, and the enemy that you thought you got away from is standing right in front of you. They looked up and said, the Egyptians are coming after us. The Israelites were terrified and cried out, Lord, help me. They said to Moses, their leader, this is what they said to Moses, their leader. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? You brought us out here to kill us? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can serve the same people that had enslaved us. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he'll accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that you've brought us here to study, to brought, brought us here to learn and to worship you, Father, through the preaching of your word. And so my prayer today, God, is that we don't just go through the motions, um, but Lord, I, I pray that today will be a day that we experience your power, that we experience your grace, that we experience your might, that we learn about your goodness. And so, Father, I, I pray today, God, that your grace will be sufficient for your people. I pray that we're not just common spectators waiting for the day to end because it's a holiday weekend and we want to go out and enjoy the beach. But I pray it's a day where in this moment, God, we, we worship you through, through our engagement with the Word of God. And so, Father, I pray today will be a day like no other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In Christ's name, people said amen. You may be seated. From, from the sermon series, God with us, my, my sermon title today is Stay on the Ropes. Stay on the Ropes. The rumble in, in the jungle, the rumble in the jungle, the, the moniker for what many consider to be the greatest boxing match of all time and arguably the greatest sporting event of the 20th century. The, the 1974 World Heavyweight boxing match between one Muhammad Ali and heavyweight champion George Foreman. The, the fight which took place in the Republic of Zaire in Central Africa was watched by an estimated one billion people worldwide. One billion people watched this fight. It, it was the world's most watched live television broadcast in history at that time. For context, and also to keep the women in the audience at attention, only 750 people viewed the royal wedding between Princess Diana and Prince Charles in 1981. And if you're a modern woman and you keep up with that kind of stuff, when Harry and Meg got married, there was roughly one to two billion people watching, and they had help with Facebook. There was no Facebook here. One billion people watched this on TV on one outlet. That's how big this fight was. Foreman was a 25-year-old undefeated heavyweight champion, and Ali was the seasoned veteran who had lost two fights and was seemingly past his prime. F Foreman, you, you got to know, Foreman was destroying everybody who stood in the ring with him. Everybody who stood in the ring with Foreman got destroyed. He was 40 and no, nobody even came close to knocking George out. Nobody came close to beating George. 37 of his 40 victories were by knockouts. Most of his fights didn't even last that long. Foreman was mainly considered the favorite in this fight because of his superior punching power. George was knocking people out cold. George was putting people in the hospital. And so the odds for Foreman to win the fight were four to one. Virtually nobody besides Ali himself thought that he had much of a chance to win. And as the boxing match began, that actually seemed to be an accurate forecast of what was about to happen. Throughout this fight, George Foreman was wailing on Ali with what appeared to be hard blows to his body as Ali stayed on the ropes. But, but in the final seconds of each round, Ali would get off the ropes and he would deliver a fury of blows until the end of the bell and the end of the round. And, and he would then go back to his corner and then start the same thing back over again. And he would just stay on the ropes. Ali throughout the fight just stayed on the ropes, not, not really moving as usual. He was known as a, a dancer, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, but not, not this night. He, he was staying on, on the ropes, but, but he was just standing there just taking all of George Foreman's punches. Some observers at the time thought that Ali was being horribly beat and worried that they might actually see him get killed in the ring. But what they didn't know was that throughout the fight, Ali would whisper to George Foreman, they told me you could punch, George. 
They, they told me you could hit hardest Joe Lewis, George. And, and Ali would just continue to take these blows from George Foreman. During the seventh round, George Foreman hit Ali with a vicious punch to the jaw. Most people thought Ali would fall. But according to Foreman, in his own words, here's what he said. I thought he was just one more knockout victim until about the seventh round. I hit him hard to the jaw, and he held me and whispered in my ear, that's all you got, George? I realized, and George said, and I quote, I realized that this ain't what I thought it was. And he was right. It wasn't what he thought it was. Ali had been setting him up all along. It was all a part of a ruse to wear George Foreman down. Ali, by his own admittance, was luring Foreman in on purpose. By the time the eighth round came, Foreman had expended all of his energy, giving Ali his best shots. And at that point in the fight, Foreman's defense was gone. He was tired. He was wore out. And Ali suddenly got off the ropes and delivered a five-punch combination, culminating with a left hook and a straight right, straight to the face, knocking George Foreman down to the canvas. And Foreman was not able to recover. And Ali was once again the champion by staying on the ropes. And what George Foreman didn't know at the time was that he was being lured in by Muhammad Ali with the strategy that Ali had been planning for weeks. This strategy would become known as the rope-a-dope. Well, one fighter stands and leans against the rope in such a way to make his opponent think that he has him trapped all the while he is setting him up to deliver a final knockout blow. And this is not just a strategy for Muhammad Ali. This is also the strategy that God is using in our text today. He is setting him up for a rope-a-dope. God is using a rope-a-dope to lure Pharaoh in so that he can deliver the last and final knockout knockout blow so that the enemy that they see today, they will see no longer. This is what's happening in the text. After God has miraculously brought Israel out of Egypt in chapter 12, in chapter 13, God teaches them about redemption. For them to be brought out of Egypt, a price had to be paid in order for them to go free. And in their case, it was the blood of a lamb that was spared and saved the lives of all of their firstborn. And they were to every year commemorate this by making a sacrifice to the Lord, by giving the Lord the first and the best of everything that came from every womb in Israel, including humans and animals, because the Lord brought them out of slavery. And here's the point of verse thir or chapter 13, even though we didn't read it, even though we didn't study it, there's a right response to what God has done. And that right response is this, acknowledge that everything belongs to the Lord, your provision and your life. God deserves our first and our best. And here's a summary of chapter 13, salvation always summons stewardship. Salvation summons stewardship. And so God, in verse or chapter 13, began the process of giving Israel instructions on how they are to worship him before they got to where he was taking them. He gave them instructions on how they were to worship him in a place he was taking them before they even got there. God wanted them to know in advance, before I take you in the place I promise you, I want to teach you how to act and how to have a relationship with me before you even get there. Because if you get there and I hadn't taught you nothing before you get there, you might get there and act a fool and forget who brought you there in the first place. This is what God is teaching them. And then with the instructions, they began their journey from slavery headed towards Canaan, the promised land. And at this point in the journey, they're up out of there. They, they, they are right outside of Egypt's borders and, and about to make their journey to the land that God promised them. They, they are out of Egypt, but not yet in the promised land. They, they are out of Egypt, out, out, of bondage, out of bondage, out of slavery. They're just not yet in the promised land. They're in between where they used to be and not quite where God wants them to be. And so verses, 13, uh, verses 17 through 22 in chapter 13, the journey begins, and we'll see something, that the trip with God right after they got saved is already off to a rocky start. Isn't that just like our salvation? That we get saved, and right after we start following Jesus, things start to go in a way that we didn't expect it. They're off to a rocky start. There's a, a direct route to where they need to be. There's a direct 
There's a direct flight straight to Canaan, but God on this day said, I don't do direct flights. I only do connecting flights. In order to get from Orlando to California, I first got to take you up to New Jersey. And they, they're headed in a direction initially right towards Canaan. But, but all of a sudden, God's GPS starts malfunctioning. Don't you hate when that happens? When the GPS doesn't account for the construction, a new exit. And th- this is what's happening in the text. God takes them in a different direction than they thought that they were going. They thought that they were headed to Canaan in a certain direction. And God has other plans to go to Canaan. Actually, you had to go north, but God has them go north initially. And then God has them heading south away from Canaan toward the wilderness by the sea. They're headed toward the desert, but right by the sea. God God doesn't take them the the normal route. Now, let me tell you something. The the route that they could take to go to Canaan is a clear route. There is a short path to their ultimate destination, but God doesn't take them the short route. There's a short and easy route, but God chooses not to take them the short and easy route. And so we can assume that they're already wondering, Man, you, we just got to, what is, what is this all about? What, what is happening right now? Why, why aren't we going the fast route? Why aren't we going the easy route? Why aren't we going directly where we plan to go? God knew something that they didn't know. With the shorter and easy route, there was one. They would have gotten there quicker. But that wasn't the way that they were prepared to go. And here's what I mean. God did not take them to a place that they were not yet ready to be. God did not take them a route that they were not prepared to go to. God did not take them the route because they knew, he knew that in order to get to Canaan from the easy short route, they would have had to go through the land of the Philistines. You've heard of the Philistines before. They come on the scene later in the text and they do battle with Israel. And at that time, David is a king. But before any of that happens, Israel don't even have an army. They're not ready to fight. They left out in battle formation, but they have no weapons. And so they, they, they can't go through the land of the Philistines. They don't know that because all they can see is the short route. But God can see what they can't see. So God doesn't take them a route that they ain't ready to go through yet. Because if they go through that route, they might die. And God is keeping them from going this route. The Philistines were not somebody to play with. You didn't go through the land of the Philistines. You didn't ride through Mercy Drive if you had never been through there before. You don't just ride through Pine Hills with the windows unlocked and the windows down like you you know somebody if you've never been there before. He said, I'm trying to keep you from going through Pine Hills. You need a safari guide to go through Pine Hills. You're not ready for that yet. More than knowing what they were ready for, God knew what they were not ready for. This, this is where we don't appreciate God. God. God knows where he's taking you. You think you know what you are ready for. God knows what you are not ready for. And this is what is happening in the text. God knew their limited perspective and their naive expectations. God knew that they were more than likely to go through the land of the Philistines and overestimate their abilities. And therefore, he led them in a longer but better direction. They were not as prepared as they thought they were. And here's what he says in verse 17, in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Here's what God says. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led them around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in a battle formation. God knew they were not ready or prepared to do the type of battle it would take to face a formidable foe. So he led them along the road of the wilderness. What is the purpose of leading them on the road to the wilderness? He led them along the place where they will learn to prepare. See, in the wilderness... God could work with them. In the wilderness, they would learn dependence and not self-sufficiency. In the wilderness, they would learn that their provision didn't come from themselves, but it came from God. In the wilderness, they would learn how to have a relationship with God. In the wilderness, God was teaching them how to trust. And maybe today, God ain't taking you the easy and the short route because God has you near the wilderness. And he's trying to teach you something so that you can learn how to trust him. You can learn how to depend on him. You can learn how to be patient with God. You can build your relationship with God so that when it is time to go to Canaan, you are not unequipped, but you are fully prepared because you've spent time with God. This is what's happening in the text. Can you, can you imagine if they would have walked straight through the land of the Philistines? One or two outcomes would have happened. One outcome is that they would have been killed in battle. 
and they were not yet strong enough to fight. The other option was that if they would have by chance went through the area of the Philistines and nothing happened and they went right into the promised land with ease, they would have forgot who got them there. They would have been proud and arrogant and they would have thought that they did it all themselves. But God was teaching them something in the wilderness. And so God not allowing them to go the short and easy route wasn't God being mean and unkind. It was actually God being loving and compassionate. When's the last time you didn't get where you thought you should be in a matter of time that you thought you should get there and you thought that God was trying to keep something away from you intentionally? You thought God is being mean or God is punishing you for doing something that you shouldn't have did or God is holding something back from you for no good reason because your heart is good and you are well-intentioned. How about this? How about we grow up and be spiritually mature and know that if oftentimes we're not in a place, it's not because God is being unkind or mean. It's because God is being loving and compassionate towards you. Because God is a loving father and he doesn't want you to be in a place yet that would rather kill you or make you prideful and forget about him. God's main focus is not for you to get what you want, it's for him to get you. And this is what's happening in the text. So with that, with that, they went out in a battle formation. It was not the most obvious way, nor the shortest way, but it was the best way because it was God's way. And God's way is always the best way. And so with that they went out in battle formation, although they weren't armed, but they didn't need to be armed. They had the only weapon that they needed, God. Then verse 19 mentions Joseph. They, Moses grabs up Joseph's bones, grabs up Joseph's bones because Joseph is a patriarch. He's a reason that they're actually, they were actually in Egypt. He had favor in Egypt. He was second in command in Egypt, although he was an Israelite. The new Pharaoh came in changed the game up on the Israelites and then put them in slavery for the last 80 years of the 400 plus years that they were in Israel. But Joseph, when he was alive, knew that the people of God, based on a promise from God, that they would not always be in Egypt. And so Joseph made his brothers promise to him on his deathbed that when the people were going to get out of Egypt, that they would pick up his body, pick up his bones and take him to the place of Canaan so that he could be buried in the land that God promised them. And so in in order for Joseph to be dying and still make them promise to him that they were going to actually at some point enter into the promised land, it took a lot of faith on his part. He's a dead man, but he knows God's faithful to his word. If he said he was going to take you to the promised land, then that's where he's taking you. So even when I die, I got enough faith to believe at some point y'all going to get up out of here. And so they took Joseph's bones with them. And so verse 20 through 21 so they set out for Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. I mean, by the end of chapter 3, and verse 21 says, The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel all day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left this place in front of Egypt, in front of the people. And here's what you need to know. They were just outside of Egypt, but not far enough away that Egypt wasn't in the distance. You could turn around and still see Egypt. And here's the good news, though. God brought them out, and God was with them. E even if the route seems strange, if God is driving, th then you can trust the driver. E even if it seems strange, even if it's not the route that you thought you were going, even if it's an alternative route, you was like, I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to bust a move here, and by the time I spend two years here, then I'm going to move up and go there, and God ain't got you nowhere. But if God is driving, you can trust the driver. God's the Uber driver. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that God's better than an Uber driver. God's the limo driver that will never get lost. He, he will never get lost. And so God is leading them, but he's leading them by his presence. He's leading them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. This is a visible manifestation of the real presence of God. This was actually God's presence going along with the people. This was good for them. So no matter the route he was leading them, even if it was not the most common route, even if it seemed like it was a confusing route to get to that destination, God 
was with them. They, they should have never worried. They should have never fret. God was right there with them during the day. He's a pillar of cloud. At night, he's a pillar of fire. They saw God with them. God is leading them on the journey. And this is a major point of emphasis for you and I to remember that if you've trusted Jesus for salvation, he is with you throughout the rest of your journey. He is literally leading us by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we don't have a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but we got something better. We got the Spirit of God leading on the inside of us. He is guiding our journey. He's telling us when to turn left. He's telling us when to turn right. He's telling us when something is good. He's telling us when something is evil. The matter is if you're going to listen or not. But God is with us. If you've been listening to God, you've been following him, you've been obeying the route that he's taking you, you've been obeying his commands, even if you are confused and you don't know how long you're going to be there, even if you don't know where God is taking you, the good news is that God is with you. God was with them and God is with us. You are not by yourself. If you got Jesus, you got the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't confuse yourself. Don't lay up at wake at night trying to figure out what God is doing. Just trust that God is with you. And even if the path and the pace that God has us on looks confusing to those around us, even if it's confusing for us at times, there's always a method to God's madness. And this is exactly what is happening. Would you turn to chapter 14 and review verses 1 through 9 with me? Look at this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Here's what God said. I know the route, but uh, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihiroth. I like saying that. I've been working on that all week. Between Migdal and the sea, you, you must camp in front of Baal Zephon. I've been working on that one too. Facing it by the sea, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has them boxed in. God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he'll actually pursue them. And then I'll receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's important. You've got to know that. You might want to underline that in verse 4. They, they will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this, meaning the Israelites went where God told them to go. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials, rem remember, Pharaoh, let them go. But Pharaoh changed their minds. Pharaoh and his people changed their minds. And they said, well, what, what were we thinking? What have we done letting them go? We released them from serving us. So he got in his chariot, took his troops, took 600 of his boys and the rest of the chariots of Egypt, all the officers and leaders, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites. And were, as they were going out defiantly, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped on the sea beside Pyahiroth in the front of Baal Zephon. And so the route the Israelites were taking made it appear that they were actually confused. And that appearance was appealing to Pharaoh who had just let them go. I, I, it, it even looked from an outside perspective that they actually may have been afraid to go where they were heading. It's like they were leaving and, and, and they were heading out the neighborhood and then the brake lights, lights came on. And, and you're like, you ever see somebody leave your house and the brake lights come on and you automatically think they must have forgot something. But they didn't, they didn't forget nothing. God, God was doing something. They didn't forget anything. God was actually doing something. They, they were still right outside of Egypt, right, right there, right outside of Egypt. They, they were not far at all. And I'm sure that there's some military guards of the Egyptian army right at the border, and they're watching the border, and they probably hit Pharaoh up on the phone, and they was like, yo, Pharaoh, the Israelites, they're hanging outside of the border. They're right out there. Dude, you just let them go. They're right out there, right outside of, of right, right outside of the there. They're right there between the desert and the sea. Dude, the sea is at their back. Like, like they're right there. We, if you check, like, we could, we, could, we could make it happen. Their back is to the sea. It's nothing but water behind them. And if we bust a move now, we'll be right there in front of them if you change your mind. And I'm sure Pharaoh thought about it for a few moments, and he thought about all the free labor that he had lost. He thought about the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian stock market was going down. And a correction happened 
And then a depression happened and they were losing money and the Egyptian S&P 500 was going down and they, they couldn't build the buildings that they were considering building and they couldn't do a big infrastructure deal for $3 trillion on the free labor of the Israelite bats. And he began to think about how that was affecting all of them. For, forget about all the stuff that we've lost. Forget about their God just killed all of our firstborn. Forget about everything that he's done by sending them plays and wiping us out completely. Forget about that. I'm sure he's thinking about it. And he's considering, reconsidering the decision that he made because he's right there for the taking. And he probably thought they don't even have their God with them anymore. Oh, look at him. They're confused. He's not with them anymore. Oh, this is good. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. He worked on their behalf before, but he ain't with them now. And Pharaoh, with his chariots and army, knew that if they wanted Israel, they had them right where they wanted them. And Pharaoh said, they said, boss, they're right there. He said, say less. Say less. Let's make it happen. And so Pharaoh got his chariots and his army, and he got on them chariots and sent all of his troops, and they went right after them. The same man who at one point refused to let them go, he actually said in the text uh, in a previous sermon, who is the Lord? I don't know him, and besides, I'm not letting them go. And he changed his mind when he lost everything, and God sent those plagues and killed all of those firstborns. He actually said before they left, go worship the Lord. He acknowledged the same God that he said that he didn't know in the beginning. He told them, go worship the Lord. Matter of fact, to add insult to injury, he asked Moses, before you go, give me a little blessing too. Hit, hit me up with a little, give me a little prayer before you leave. So the same man that didn't believe at one point is now telling them, go worship the Lord and bless me before you get out. And so he didn't like what was happening to him. And therefore, he made a confession based on the bad stuff that was happening to him. It appeared he changed his mind, but he didn't change his heart. He made a confession with his mouth, but he never repented with his heart. He made a confession with his mouth, but his heart didn't follow. So some people only acknowledge God when bad things happen. But as soon as things get a little better and goes back to normal, they want nothing to do with him. As soon as the pandemic hits, we just trusting in God. I just pray the blood of Jesus covers me. You ain't been in a church in 47 years, but now you want the blood to cover you. You're praying like you've never prayed before. And as soon as outside is back open, they want to go back to normal and want nothing to do with him. Even with all the devastating things that they experienced, he wants Israel back because he realized this is costing me too much money not to have them in bondage. And this is just like people who start following Jesus and stop because they realize how much it costs to follow him. Not money, but their life. They realize that following Jesus doesn't cost money. It costs your whole life. So in spite of all the proof that is evident about God, they continue to pursue evil. And what we see here is a continual hardening of heart, seeing the glory of God on full display. He said all of those plagues on Pharaoh, all of those swarm of frogs and swarm of gnats and turning water to blood and doing all of those things and killing all the firstborns. He's showing off before them. They see the glory of God on full display and they don't acknowledge and they don't surrender. And he's, what they don't realize is that, and what Pharaoh doesn't realize is he's gradually building a case against himself every time he pursues evil wickedness and persecutes the people of God. He thinks that he's getting away with it, but he's only building a case against himself. And this is nothing more than humanity's rebellion against God on full display. This is what the kingdom of Pharaoh epitomizes, rebellion against God. I think Paul makes it clear for us in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Here is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Here's what Paul said. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. This is what the plagues was doing. 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, there is, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, including Pharaoh, for they knew God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And this is what we see with Pharaoh. Every time God sends a plague, and Pharaoh pump fakes like he's sorry, only to enslave the Egyptians a little bit more. He continues to pursue evil, but what he doesn't know is he's building a case against himself. And here's what's happening. Paul makes it even clearer in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Here's what the apostle Paul says. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. If it feels like you keep getting away with something, if you're just in church but not in Christ, if you go to church but you're not following Jesus and you say, I'll just a quick God forgive me prayer, and you're going about your business and you're using God, you don't realize is that God's patience with you. The reason you still have breath in your lungs and God hadn't killed you is because God is contending with you. His kindness towards you is meant to lead you to repentance. And but because of your heart and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And this is what is happening in the text to Pharaoh. This is the plight of the world and its systems. They think that they will get away with everything because it appears like everything they're doing is working. But just like Pharaoh, they don't know that God is actually at work. And Pharaoh thought he was winning the whole time, but little did he know God was doing the rope-a-dope. This was God setting Pharaoh up the whole time, but, but God is bending Pharaoh's evil heart toward his redemptive purposes. This was a ruse by God to get Pharaoh to come after the people again so the people uh, could, so that God could accomplish two things through Pharaoh. Verse 4 of chapter 14 tells us what it is. He says, then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his armies, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This was a setup for two things, knowledge of God and glory. God is setting Pharaoh up to once and for all bring him in Egypt to the knowledge of God. They would know him once and for all through what was about to take place at the Red Sea. God was, through this experience, going to demonstrate once and for all to Pharaoh and his people that he was Lord. He was setting Pharaoh up to get to know him. That They would know that he was the one living, true God. At, every, at some point, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will, will give praise to God. This is what is about to happen. And what we see happening to Pharaoh eventually in the story is what is going to happen to the world and its system. At some point, even if they don't acknowledge God, even if they don't believe in him, meaning trust in what he's done for them, at some point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It may not happen today, it may not happen tomorrow, but it is going to happen eventually. They will not get away with it. And so he's setting them up for knowledge of God, but he's setting his people up to give him glory. And I know that sounds wonderful that the people are going to give him glory, but the way that God will receive glory is by putting his people in an impossible situation. There will be no way that they made this out of this, that they'd be able to get credit for it. They would have only one place to give the credit. Look at verses 10 through 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were those Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified, cried out to the Lord for help. God, please help us. And they said to Moses, isn't it amazing how when they don't like what God is doing or what God has done, they turn on the leader? And here's what he's saying. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're being cynical. Of course there are graves in Egypt. He just wiped out a whole platoon of firstborn. So sure, there are graves there. Then they say, well, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Why, why didn't you let us stay stuck like we were? Why didn't you let us keep doing the same stuff? Why, why didn't you let us keep having the fun and having a good time and acting like our life was our own and doing things on our own terms and doing things our way and the way we like doing them? Why, why, why did you keep us from doing that? Why did you bring us out? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. I don't want to be free. I want to be in bondage. Leave me alone, God. I don't want this. It'd have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, shut up. 
Don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he'll accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. We look at them and they're having a straight up panic attack. They see hundreds of Egyptians approaching fast. I guess they realize, like we do, that the enemy never goes on break. The enemy never takes a vacation. Satan does not believe in work-life balance. Satan is like Walmart. He's always open. (laughs) Christmas, open. Thanksgiving, open. Your birthday, he's open. Labor Day, he's open. He never goes to sleep. He He never turns the clock off. And so, what's crazy is they think Pharaoh is coming to kill them. But Pharaoh doesn't want to kill them. Pharaoh just wants to enslave them again. He wants them to serve him again. Maybe he'll kill them later, but he wants to use them first. And I think they missed that point. They're panicking. They they don't know what to think. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He pursued the Israelites. They were going, it says they were going out defiantly. Like they were like, yeah, it's on now, baby. We did it. We're up out of there. They were celebrating. Yes. They walked out with boldness. And all of a sudden, the salvation is brand new. They, they just got saved. They just got delivered. Their confidence is at an all-time high. Then they realize that Satan ain't taking no days off. And this is what people have second thoughts about the faith. This, this is what I signed up for. I thought the preacher told me that God wanted me to be blessed. I thought the preacher told me that God was taking me to the next level. I thought he told me that I was going to a new dimension. I thought he told me he was sending me to the nations. I thought he told me that I had a worldwide ministry. I thought God told me he was going to get rid of all my haters. Oh, I hate when they say that in sermons. Oh, shut up. Nobody's hating on you. Nobody even knows you. The preacher told me this was all about me, that God was going to serve my purposes. That he was going to do things for me. He didn't tell me that I had to serve him. And so people have regrets. How could a good and gracious God that the TV preacher told me about dare take me through this type of experience of pain and suffering after he gave me instructions to leave the past behind? I thought I was going to be next leveled. To leave Egypt, my place of familiarity and comfort where I'm used to doing the things I used to do, doing the things that I enjoy doing, being to myself, doing my own thing, nobody bothering me, not being bothered with God, not being bothered with people, not being bothered with the church. I love that type of stuff. He, he, he wouldn't have me leave the old way, would he? And the old mindset to bring me here. I thought God was going to serve me and make my life easy and nothing would happen to me and I would not get sick and things wouldn't go wrong and my kids wouldn't act up and I wouldn't lose money that, that I was trying to pay for school for and I wouldn't be behind on my bills. I thought he was doing all of this stuff for me. I don't know if I made the right decision following Jesus. Thought this marriage was going to be perfect. Thought it was going to be easy. I watched all these rom-coms. I thought it was going to work out. These romantic comedies taught me that it was going to be love. And I found my soulmate. It was going to be easy. We never were going to argue. We are never going to fight. And told me I had relationship goals. This is what happened for me. Everything was going to be right. Just leave me where where I am. Matter of fact, I don't think I was meant to be free. Because I've been stuck for so long, getting up ain't on my mind. And this can be our thought process if we're not careful. We begin to think that we were created to be enslaved. But the devil is a liar. You were created to be free. Just like them, we fear change. We fear uncertainty. We fear the unknown. We fear giving up more of ourselves to God for his purposes because it might interfere with what we got going on. Here's what fear does. It makes us delusional, so delusional that we prefer bondage over freedom. We tell God, leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. It was better for me or it is better for me in the place where at least I live under the illusion that I have pleasure, comfort, and the big one, control. I love what theologian Douglas Stewart says in his commentary on the book of Exodus. He says this, when hardship is encountered, the miserable past suddenly looks like the good old days. 
But this is our consistent mindset. If this is, it means that we are forgetting what has happened to us. We're forgetting that something supernatural happened to us or nothing happened to us at all. If we say that we are saved and it means that something supernatural happened to us, meaning God took us from death to life, it either means something, it means something happened to us or nothing happened to us. Israel saw God do something supernatural. He literally supernatural caused a hard-hearted Pharaoh to let them go and be free from bondage. They saw it. They experienced it. God supernaturally frees us from the bondage of sin so that we can be free to serve them, to serve him. He supernaturally brought us from death to life. So just like them, if they experience a supernatural deliverance, that's the only assurance they need to trust him with what is in front of them. And the same goes for us. If he saved you and you've experienced salvation, now ain't the time not to trust him. Because if he saved you, he can keep you. But their fear and doubt were rooted in a lack of trust. And you know where that lack of trust comes from? Spiritual amnesia. That's why in chapter 13, he told them to commemorate them coming out of Egypt. He said, do this every year. Bring me the best of the first. Bring me the best and the first of all of your livestock and your firstborn. Make offerings for them so that you can remember it was me who gave you life. Never forget this. Fathers, teach it to your children lest you go and enter the promised land and you forget about me. God wanted them to remember them, remember this, but they are all of a sudden, soon as they get delivered, suffering from spiritual amnesia. They're operating in fear, but you know the scripture says that God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, rather one of power, love, and sound judgment. I want to read something to you. I think Paul illustrates our mindset that we ought to have when we've been delivered, here's what he says in Romans 8, verses 14 through 15. He says this, for all those led by God's spirit are God's son. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we are God's sons and daughters. He did not give us this spirit of Fear. God doesn't want us to long for slavery. He wants us to bask in the reality of our freedom that we have in him. But what's happening is that they are now living by sight and not by faith. And yes, it does appear that they are helpless and that they can do nothing to stop what is about to happen to them. That they are faced with destruction in front of them and the sea behind them. They are not wrong. They are helpless. They are under, underprepared. They are ill-equipped. They cannot fight. And I told you that the Red Sea is at their back. Here's what you need to know about the Israelite people at that time. They can't swim. I related to them so much when my research revealed that they couldn't swim. I said, I feel their pain because I can't do nothing. I like to look at the water. Pastor enjoys the beach, but I can't swim. So you got an enemy you can't beat coming in front of you, and you got the water behind you, and you can't swim. What do you do when you ain't got no place to go? Stay on the ropes. Stay right there because God has you right where he wants you. He wants you in a place where you can do nothing to save yourself. And this is the predicament that we are all in apart from the grace of God. If he did not intervene, we could not save ourselves because we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is God's gift, not from work. So anyone can boast. And so Moses, as I close, gives them the solution to what they are about to experience. They got the enemy in front of them. And the sea behind them. And some of you are sitting here. You're putting yourself in the shoes of the Egyptians. You see that big old sea behind them. They're on the shore. And you see an army coming to them. And there's nothing that they could do about it. And Moses tells them, nah, don't be afraid. Stand right where you are and see the Lord's salvation that he's about to accomplish for you today. The Egyptians you see today, that mess you're looking at right now, you're not going to see it again. The, the Lord is going to fight for you, and, and here's what I need you to do. Shut up. The Lord's going to fight for you. Shut up. Be still and shut up. 
in what has been described as Moses' finest hour of leadership, he is reassuring them, do not be fearful. Man up. You don't got a right to be afraid. Stand firm. Don't waver. Keep being obedient to God. Stay right where he has you. Watch God do what God does. Be sealed. See his salvation that he's going to accomplish for you today. Here's what Moses is saying. Give up any thought you have of going outside of the will of God to save yourself because we can't save ourselves. This is the point of the whole book of Exodus, is that they are saved, not through their own works, but they're saved by grace. This was the Lord's salvation. Notice this text is not about the Israelites. This text is not about Pharaoh. This text is not about the Egyptian army. This text is about God. This is God's story. They are part of God's salvation. Why would you say that? Because this is not about their salvation first. This is about the glory of God. God. I, I love that they're here in this helpless place. I love it. I love, I love what, they, what, they're, what they're in because Ali speaks to that. After the fight, I saw an interview with Ali, and here's what Ali said after the fight, after he knocked out George Foreman with the rope of dopes. Here's what he said, and I quote, I stayed on the ropes, and when I stayed on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with the heavyweight when you make him shoot in his best shot, and he can't hit you. So when Moses said, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. I imagine that Moses is saying to them, just stay on the ropes. I want to encourage you today to just stay on the ropes. Stop worrying. Stop being fearful. Stop being afraid. Stop trying to swarm your way out of whatever you're in. Stop trying to stay up all night. Stop stressing other people about what you cannot control. Just stay on the ropes. When you feel like you are boxed in and there is no way out, just stay on the ropes. When you feel like it would have been better to be back in Egypt, stay on the ropes. When Satan seemingly has you covered and death is imminent, God will fight for you. Just stay on the ropes. This is an invitation to trust God in all situations and circumstances because God is with us and God wants you to just stay on the ropes. God is going to save you, not because of you, but God is going to save you because of him. This is about the glory of God. And I'll say this. One theologian said this about Jesus. The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. You were saved for the glory of God. And if you feel that there is no way out, you are in good company. Because Jesus faced death with no way out. He asked his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there be any other way that I don't have to take this cup, would you remove it from me? Not my will, but your will be done. It was God's plan from eternity for Jesus to suffer and go to the cross. And when it looked confusing, it looked crazy, it looked foolishness, and it was confounding to man's wisdom. It was God's plan all along for him to face the death that we should have faced. But he didn't just face death, he grappled with death and he died. He fought Satan, sin, and death. All the things that will come to kill us when we found ourselves cornered with no way out. He faced the death that we deserved to but could not because we were too weak to. Death thought it had victory over Jesus, but God was setting Satan up the whole time. Just when he thought it was over, three days later, the Spirit of God raised Jesus out of the grave. Sin and death were finally defeated. The Son was raised to life with all power, never to die again because of the resurrection. We can face our worst fears knowing that because of what Christ has done and that Christ has been raised, we will be raised with him. And you may feel hopeless or helpless, but you are not hopeless. We can look to Christ and know that we don't have to fear, we don't have to doubt we can look back at what Christ has done for us and let the cross be a reminder that the enemy we see today we will never see again and this is the good news of the gospel that God is fighting for you God has fought for you the Lord has won and the Lord will win again stay on the ropes let's pray We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful